This is episode number 69 with Steve Jordan. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. All right, my dear friend Steve Jordan is back. He's been on the podcast a number of times, but if you haven't heard an episode with him, he is a celebrity trainer in Los Angeles. He's trained Jordan Belfort, Ariana Huffington, Toby Maguire, and just so many more. The list is absolutely incredible. Now, this past summer, I helped Steve launch a podcast called I Am Healthy and Fit. One of his first few episodes was about his story. 20 years ago, he suffered a traumatic brain injury that nearly took his life. And through what he calls the miracle of health and fitness, he recovered far beyond any of the doctor's expectations to the point where he's doing what he's doing today and he's achieved such great success. And not only does he have those clients, but he's received recognition in just about every major media publication and, you know, been on TV and uh, been on Dr. Oz and Steve's doing it. And he's a dear friend of mine. I love him. And when he recorded this, even though I actually didn't partake in this conversation, but I was actually right next to him on the couch while he was recording this. And he actually, you know, he got, I think, 30 minutes in and then he lost the recording somehow. And so he had to tell it again, and then I was interviewing him, I believe, later that day or the next day. And so during that interview, he didn't really, you know, he was kind of sick of telling this this long story. And so we didn't really get to go into it on this podcast in particular. So I've been wanting for a long time to bring it to you here because it's just such a compelling story, such a such a unique story of of perseverance. I mean, the guy was almost dead. I mean, it was just, it was a horrific, horrific accident. And he's going to tell you about it. So go check his podcast out, I Am Healthy and Fit, if and only if you want to become the healthiest and fittest version of yourself. He's interviewed people like Sugar Ray Leonard and Noah Galloway. Now, without further ado... Here is the one, the only, Steve Jordan. You know, by wanting to fit in, I ended up losing, like, my original intention of going to Maryland to play lacrosse. And I do have that regret. But, um, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm at today, and I'm grateful for what I've learned and where I'm at, and... It's okay, but it is still a little bit of a regret. So let's fast forward now to my fresh, my sophomore year, September 23rd, 1994. 
Um, it's the day that changed my life. It's the what I call my rebirth, my second birthday. And it's really why I am who I am today and why I do what I do today as a health and fitness coach. And it's why I'm here on this podcast telling you a little bit more about me. Because what I just created there for you was a just a brief summary of you know my life being challenging, but it was never going to be never as challenging as what was going to happen the evening of September 23rd. But what it did do was it set me up for September 23rd. And that evening, my friend Brian Paris and I went down to visit my friend Dan Radziniak and Jake Duran, who were playing football against each other from two opposing universities, Dan at Hopkins and Jake at Fairleigh Dickinson, New Jersey. And um, it was a unique opportunity to see our two friends play each other, both starters, one quarterback, the other one a receiver of the other team. And uh, we went down there and sure enough, we partied and we hung out and we were having a good time just as, you know, 19 year old uh, kids do in college, sophomore year, having a blast. And we were invited to my friend Dan's fraternity house after the game um, to just enjoy the evening and the friends and the people there and uh, the celebration of the victory that they had um, over Fairleigh Dickinson. And so I ended up... uh, on a balcony with my buddy Brian and there was a very low railing on this balcony. It was two stories high, about 18 feet. And we were rough playing and we fell off. And I landed on my head onto the concrete, 18 feet, split my head open, traumatic brain injury, blood oozing out of my head, gray matter coming out of my ears, crowd goes bananas like, party shuts down. My friend Jake comes to my side. And folks, I don't remember any of this. This is all just secondhand story that I'm telling you from my friends that were there. Grabs me and like holds my head in his arms and just watching me die in his arms. And my friend Brian fell with me, but he he suffered a a less of a, of a, of a accident. He had fell on his hip and landed on a little bit of his head. He was he was not unconscious. I was, um, but the paramedics being in Johns Hopkins, we were very close to the hospital there. So they were there within minutes. They took me from my friend, Jake, put me on the gurney and took me to the university of Maryland shock trauma center and took Brian as well, but they took him to Hopkins. And, uh, when I was admitted in the, the university shock trauma center, the doctors and nurses stabilized me and determined that I needed to have emergency brain surgery to save my life and to save my brain from any brain damage or to, uh, el- or to lessen any brain damage I had already had uh, suffered. Um, my parents got a call in the middle of the night from my friend Jake and Danny's mom, um, who parents who were there at the game. My parents called up their friend uh, when they found out that I was in a bad situation. They called up their friend who was head of neurosurgery at University of Maryland. And he called up his friend of, of neurosurgery, his colleague, to go in and perform my brain surgery. So my parents had to drive four hours. You know, you know, I can't imagine parents out there. I'm sure I'm not a parent yet, but I can't imagine the feelings of of stress and of, of fear that was going through my parents driving four hours to get to me knowing that I was in a life death situation and that I may be dead by the time they arrive. So when they got to the hospital, I was already in OR. 
Um, I had six, seven hour brain surgery to reduce the swelling of my brain, to clean up like what was going on inside, losing the spinal cord fluid that's sewing things up and uh, putting the gray matter back in and cleaning it up. And I had a laceration through the forehead of my head, like from the bridge of my nose through my eyebrow that they had to sew and suture up. Um, basically, they just, they're putting me back together. And um, when I got out of the OR, um, this my, my mom told me that the nurse said, Stephen, your mom is here. Your mom's here. Tell her you're going to be okay. And my mom said that I was able to hear the nurse and I gave my mom a thumbs up. And when she told me this, I remember she told me this probably 10, 12 years ago. And it brought tears to my eyes because that was the kind of guy that I was. Remember I told you the story about being like, beat up and I wasn't always the strongest and yeah I was an all-state lacrosse player but I worked really freaking hard to get there and I was an all-conference football player but I worked really freaking hard to get there and I got knocked down a lot and I got beat up a lot and I got pushed a lot and I got really just challenged a lot in everything that I did because I just I had to fit in and I would always like that was the attitude I always had was like thumbs up. I'm going to get back up. I'm going to do this. I'm better than this. I can do this and I'm going to be a part of this and I'm going to fit in. And so that's kind of like how I feel like when she told me that I gave this thumbs up is how I felt like I was going to recover, but I didn't really know what to what extent I was in. So when I got pulled out, so when they pulled me out, I got put into a coma induced state and they do this often for people who have head trauma as severe as I did. And it's to stabilize you because they, they want to monitor you. They want to make sure you don't have a seizure. They need to look at all your vitals. Um, so I was put in a coma-induced state for a couple of days. When I woke, I don't remember anything waking, um, but I do first recall one of my best friends, Christy Parisi, coming visit me in the hospital when they allowed anybody who was not a family member to come in. This was about a week after I was first admitted. And when she came into the room, I remember her almost collapsing and passing out because of the look of what she saw me. My head was swollen the size of a basketball. I had over 100 staples and stitches in my head, sewing my head together. Um, I talked out of the side of my mouth because I had suffered Bell's palsy because I crushed my facial nerve that controls the movement of your face. And it's like being paralyzed. So I was paralyzed on the left side of my face and talked only out of the side of my face like this and so I made noises and talked like that when I could speak and speaking for me was really challenging. I had memory loss, both short-term and long-term memory. Um, if you told me your name, the chances of me remembering it about five seconds, 10 seconds later were like zero. Um, I didn't and don't still remember part of my life and history of my, of my childhood, many details um, I don't recall when friends talk about stories of things. I don't really recall those. Or if I do recall them, they're not really that vivid. Um, I also had massive hearing loss in my left ear, almost 100% deaf in my left ear. See, the trauma was on the left side of my head. I had landed more on the left side of the back of my head. And um, I crushed my my eardrum, the smallest bones in your body, um, these three little bones, I crushed them. And so they were broken and I couldn't hear. And um, I mean, it was, it, it was bad. And my right eye was like swollen. I had bloodshot eyes. 
So Christy almost passes out, and I realized in that moment like the severity of what I was in. And um, I was in intensive care with a bedside nurse, a catheter, IV being fed through IV for almost two and a half weeks. I mean, it was it was really freaking intense. Um, you know, I was on morphine and many drugs to take away the pain and ease the situation I was going through. So a lot of it doesn't really, it, it didn't really and doesn't resonate with me still to this day. Um, but when I got released out of intensive care and I got put into like the regular hospital room, they started doing a lot of tests and finding out the severity of my brain damage and my memory loss. And they determined that I wasn't going to be able to go back to college at that point, that it was that severe, and that I was going to have to go to cognitive therapy, um, therapy that would help to potentially retrain my brain to remember things and to summarize things and you know, live a normal life. Um, but they also determined that I was going to have to undergo other surgeries um, to help to uh, bring me back to more balance. And one surgery that was going to have to happen and happen very quickly was I was going to have to have a facial uh, nerve replant or um, replacement. So they told me one afternoon, I remember um, this almost vividly, the two doctors, the neurosurgeon and the ENT sitting at my, the side of my bed and telling me that I was going to have to have this other brain surgery to replace this facial nerve. And it was to help get movement back in my face. And they were only hoping for about 50% movement because there's almost no... 100% nerve replacement that can be that effective. And so with that, they were hoping that I would be able to move some of my face and my face went atrophy and I wouldn't look deformed. You know, growing up, I was a good looking kid. I had a lot going for me, but I, right now I was at the lowest point of my life. And um, when they left my room, I remember that evening, I don't know why and what motivated me to do this, but I got out of my bed and I walked over to the mirror in the room and I stared at myself and I stared at somebody I couldn't, couldn't recognize and didn't recognize and that I was ashamed of. And I was ashamed of because I, was, I didn't look like myself. And remember, I had over 100 staples and stitches in my head. My head was the size of a basketball. I looked like Frankenstein. And for some reason, I motivated myself and or willed myself to move my bottom lip. And if you guys ever recall Billy Idol... Or uh, you know, Billy Idol was this character who, and, and singer songwriter that I, I loved. He was actually someone that a lot of people thought I looked like. Um, I had this blonde hair, especially when I was young. I had like you know almost bleach blonde hair, and uh, Billy Idol did as well. And I dressed up as him for Halloween when I was in like the fifth grade, when like parachute pants were in, and like I I, I had this snarl that. Billy Idol had, and I, I always could do it, and I did it really well. Um, and for whatever reason, that evening when I was staring into that mirror, I willed myself to move my lip, which was something that I don't know to this day what made me do that, but I did it, and I was able to do it over and over again. I controlled it. I controlled it like you control a muscle, like if you were paralyzed in your left arm, imagine, and you couldn't bend it or pull your arm towards your shoulder like you were doing a bicep curl. And you all of a sudden willed yourself and looked at yourself and you said, do it, do it, you can do it, I can do this, I, I can do this, and you did it. And like all of a sudden, like you think that, wow, that was a miracle, that was incredible. Well, I moved my lip and I didn't think that that was a miracle and I didn't think it was anything that was 
you know, worthy. But the next day when my parents and I talked to the doctors about the brain surgery that was going to have to happen within the next few days, because the longer you leave a nerve untreated, especially when it's been damaged, the less likely you'll be able to have a regeneration. So this was a time-sensitive surgery. When I told my parents that I was able to move my lip, they were like, well, make sure you tell the doctors. And when the doctors asked if we had any questions about the surgery, about the risks, the benefits, the procedure, and whatnot, and they were going to go ahead and schedule it, I told them that I was able to do this, and they said, no, Stephen, that's impossible. And I don't remember this 100%, but my parents remember and recall it, and they're the ones that told me this. They said, no, he said that he can do it. And when they put me on point and said, let's see this, well, I was able to do it. And in that moment, the ENT who performed my original brain surgery with the neurosurgeon put his hand on my shoulder, and I do remember this. He said, Stephen, you're a miracle. And he walked out of the room. The neurosurgeon made me do it over and over and over again. And so he was just like appalled and in disbelief that I could do this because the MRIs and the CAT scans showed that the nerve was damaged and this was the nerve that they were going to replace. And he said, Stephen, you're a miracle. And he only had an explanation at that point was that because of my health and because of my fitness that... I was able to regenerate that nerve because of these proteins um, that were in abundance in my brain and in my body that helped to reformulate that nerve connection. And that was the only explanation he could give, but he said it was a miracle and they weren't even that sure. But he gave me these facial exercises like, again, if you had a, 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 an injury in another part of your body, they would give you rehab exercises. Well, I got rehab exercises for my face. And I did those exercises over and over and over again for over a year until I was able to control the movement of my face. And I almost now had no, I didn't have to have the brain surgery and I didn't have to have the, um, you know, have to have and look deformed. So the miracle of that story was not necessarily that it came back, but it was also in the time that it came back. Because had I not had done that that night, had I not had taken action, had I not had whatever motivated me to take that action to move my lip, I would have had that facial nerve replacement and I know for a fact that it would not have been successful as the success that I had by just regenerating my brain, by believing I was healthy and fit and that I had to be able to recover through moving my face like you would rehab any other muscle. So... I'm going to leave you on that point there because, ladies and gentlemen, that is the miracle of being healthy and fit. It happens in times when you don't necessarily know when it's going to happen or when you might need the tools that you need that you gain from being healthy and fit. See, healthy and fit is not just about being physically beautiful. It's not about being physically attractive. It's about being mentally, emotionally, spiritually attractive, not to just others, but to yourself. So when life throws you a curveball or when life throws you off of a balcony 18 feet onto your head in a life and death situation where most people would die and or be paralyzed and or not recover, ladies and gentlemen, healthy and fit gets you through that. I'm a living miracle and I'm proof of that. And I am healthy and fit. Thank you for listening. And this is just part one of part two 
I look forward to telling you more about the story. Hey everybody, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor today, Anchor. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, when I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts and all the other places people like to listen? How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every single one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it is 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing so, then go to anchor.fm start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm start, and I can't wait to hear your podcast. And now back to the show. We're going to now go, I was still in the hospital. I had to undergo a lot more tests. They discovered that I had lost short-term and long-term memory loss. And in what specific areas that I had lost short-term and long-term memory. And after a few more weeks in the hospital, a total of, I want to say six and a half weeks in the hospital at University of Maryland, I was ambulanced back to New Jersey. A three and a half hour ride, very aware of being in an ambulance, lying on a gurney with someone in the back. There may have been two people in the back, but definitely one person in the back and someone driving me three and a half hours north to New Jersey, where I was from, to another hospital there called Children's Specialized Hospital in, um, I think it was South Plainfield, New Jersey. Um, And my parents chose this hospital because they wanted to admit me into uh, it's called Kessler in Newark, New Jersey. It's where Christopher Reeves was brought when he had his spinal cord injury and where a lot of people are brought who are older. My parents thought that it would be too traumatic for me and maybe that they were maybe too, uh, might be too aggressive with me to deal. So they had found this children's specialized hospital, which was also a little bit more local uh, because I was going to eventually be an outpatient where every day I had to go back and forth. So that put a lot more responsibility on my parents um, and some relatives to be able to bring me or pick me up. So there was a couple reasons why they chose this. Um, But typically they only saw patients under the age of 18. But at the time I was 19 and they made an exception. So I got admitted in and I was uh, admitted into a community room. Um, God, what do I say about this community room? So the community room was a room with about five beds in there. Well, at the time, they didn't know what kind of condition I was going to be in. So I was put into a bed that had guardrails on the side like uh, toddlers have when they first learn to have their first bed so they don't fall out or roll over. Um, so that was kind of, uh, what would I say? It was traumatic to be an adult, a 19 year old young man to be put into a, a bed with guardrails on it. And there were other beds in there, uh, that did not look like beds. They looked more like cribs, adult cribs, cribs where 14 year olds and 12 year olds were in because they were, they were outside of themselves uh, and would climb out of these beds if they were not in a crib with a high enough, uh, you know, uh, 
high enough railing to get over. Well, I have to tell you, while I was there, in that week that I was there, on two separate occasions, there was a child. Um, I don't know why he was admitted in there. I think that many of them had suffered some type of trauma like myself. Um, some that were a lot more serious than me, most a lot more serious than me, crawled out of his crib in the middle of the night. Like I would, I woke up to the sound of a kid crying, crying on the ground and nurses coming in. Ladies and gentlemen, it was so traumatic. And I don't know if my mom and dad ever really knew this. And if you're listening, mom and dad, um, really wasn't the best decision to put me there. But you know what? I, I, I have no regrets. And I actually turned that negative into a positive because it made me want to get out of there even more. And it made me look within to ignore everything that was around me. And I looked within to be able to um, find that motivation, the, the inspiration to get out of this. And I used music at the time. Uh, a girlfriend that I, I had in high school who was a best friend at a time um, and who's someone who was deeply involved in some of my recovery as far as being supportive and as a friend. Uh, Marika, uh, if you're listening, I uh, love you and uh, will always be grateful for that mixtape you gave me. Um, I remember it. I hear a lot of songs on there from Counting Crows. Um, you know, I used that tape to, to, to withdraw and to go into my own world so I didn't have to hear the sounds of kids crying young adults crying, you know, teenagers crying and crawling out of cribs, spooky, and uh, even give me, gives me chills just thinking about it again. But it was, uh, it was my reality for a week. And during the day, I would go uh, with some of the doctors there, the therapist, and I would do these tests and studies. And I remember one afternoon walking off of the, the campus, if you will, and going to a local grocery store and going in, and they made me, gave me a, a checklist of items to purchase in the grocery store. And I had to go up to the counter and bring the items up there. And they gave me like $20 and they knew the items were going to cost less than $20. And I had to give the teller the $20 and then receive the exact change and make sure that I was able to count money and receive money and exchange money. This was all part of my recovery. And they had to know that I was able to do these things. And it sounds funny and ridiculous, um, you know, even now as I say it, but they didn't know. They had to, they couldn't assume that I was able to. They had to conclude that I was able to in order to release me and in order to find out. But that's how bad I was. That's how, how traumatic this brain injury was and how bad I was off. Uh, because if you look at me now, you would never know that anything happened. But I don't have pictures to really identify what I went through. Um, I even asked my parents if I had, they had any pictures. And they're like, Stephen, why would we take pictures of you lying in the hospital bed with your head the size of a basketball, over 100 staples and stitches in your head, and being completely deformed? Like, they would have to physically at that time, 23 years ago, come in with a camera and take pictures. Today, it would be easier. You can do pictures with your phone and selfies or whatnot, and much more easy to... Uh, see that progress. But I do have a couple pictures that were taken um, a couple months after that you'll see in a post uh, one day in the very near future. 
So yeah, I went through all these tests and after a week of being there, they realized that I had lost short-term memory. That was the biggest deficit that I had. Although long-term was something, it still wasn't going to uh, impair me from leading a normal life. And or what I wanted to be most important at the time was going back to college. They were very uncertain that I was going to be able to go back to college. But I, I ensured them that I was going to and I wanted to. So they kept that in the forefront of the goal. So I was released from that little hospital there. Um, and I was brought to and from the hospital, uh, the in-outpatient by my parents uh, in the morning and my aunt, Debbie, God bless you, love you. Uh, she would pick me up and I would go to their house after. It was around two o'clock in the afternoon, one o'clock in the afternoon. I had about half a day, five hours there for therapy, but I was exhausted. I remember falling asleep and I remember my aunt um, crying and she still cries to this day sometimes during our holiday events when this comes up. She's like, she felt so bad for me and she was so nervous. She said that I would just fall asleep and like sometimes I would shake and I would, I had like little, my, my face was deformed and she, she knew me my whole life. So she was just, she just felt so bad and she still brings tears to her eyes today. Um, you know, more tears of joy now, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a pitch in from family and, uh, some of my friends that were, you know, back from college during the winter break came to see me. Some of my high school friends that I had went to high school with that still lived in the area came to see me and say hello and just pop in every once in a while to give me some, you know, motivation while I was home and recovering. Um, but during that time of recovery, uh, my friend Brian, uh, who fell off the balcony with me, he was also home from college because he fractured his hip and couldn't get around too well. Um, because he was on crutches, he started going to the gym. And when I was released to be able to, to do activity, he would pick me up uh, because he was able to drive and pick me up and we'd go to the gym. And I started working out. And I don't really recall like what my intention was when I first started. I think it was just really just start moving. Um, but I know that I just needed to be healthy and fit. I knew that moving would be better than not moving. I knew that exercise was going to be beneficial in one way or another. But that is when I had the realization that exercise was more than just looking good. Because when I was growing up, it was about performing good on the sports field, playing lacrosse, playing football or wrestling or doing whatever. Uh, it was about looking good, you know, on the beach and taking my shirt off and having that acknowledgement, you know, wanting to fit in and be better than everybody else. Because I always had probably one of the best bodies, if not the best body. Um, so that was a way that make me feel like I was part of something. Um, exercise at this time during my recovery was about feeling good. It was about feeling good about who I was. It was about feeling good where I was going and the process that I was going to be, uh, embarking on for however long. And I didn't know the end game. Um, I had no idea how long my recovery would take and feeling good became, the whole intention behind that. And slowly but surely, the feeling good started to affect the way that I started to present myself in the world. It started to feel better about myself. I started to get my, my, my mojo back, if you will. And I started to feel like I was becoming me again. At the time, my friend Brian got a modeling gig and uh, he brought me along and the modeling agent 
Mike Lyons uh, had this kind of modeling agency in New York for models who were fit and athletic. Um, and I was pretty fit and athletic during that time. I gained a lot of muscle back pretty quick and I got pretty ripped. Um, I still looked a little deformed, a lot deformed looking back on it now, but he, uh, he really liked some of the, you know, the look that I had and the, the body that I had. And so I had a photo shoot and, um, I ended up actually booking a commercial for Game Boy. Uh, I don't know if any of you listeners out there even know what Game Boy is, but Game Boy was like the first handheld Nintendo uh, device that you can do on the go anywhere, uh, battery operated and um, you know, had games on there. But I was in a Nintendo commercial uh, as an extra. Uh, it, was, it was a dance nightclub sort of commercial um, with dancers in the background, and I danced like I was in a nightclub. And um, that was something that was really awesome for me at the time because it helped build confidence, helped build me back up and make me feel like I was like I was back. Um, although I still had a really long recovery, um, I felt like I was coming back. And in my therapy, they simulated school-like environments for me where I had to read a paragraph and summarize it. I had to talk like... I would tell a story without getting caught up in my words because I had tip of the tongue syndrome. So we've all experienced that at one point in our lives or more where you want to say something you forget and you're like, ah, what is that? What, uh, you know, I know what I want to say, or, you know, that person's name, but it just doesn't come to you. Well, that was very common for me. And I had to overcome that with certain skill building uh, processes and, uh, recalling information like phone numbers and names, and again, going back to summarizing and writing things down, crossword puzzles, and just different ways, mnemonic devices uh, where you would uh, you know, learn a word and be able to associate it with something. So there was a bunch of different ways that I learned to learn and remember things. And to be honest, it was probably the first time I ever learned that anyway. No one in my elementary school or junior high school ever taught me how to learn or taught me how to study. And I think that's an area in our school system that needs to be addressed because that is important. I think it's probably more important than even a subject matter. It should be some of the first things we learn before we learn math, writing, and, um, and, and some of the other, uh, other courses that we learn. But you have to know how to, how to memorize and how to, how to study in order to get through school and be able to retain information because it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. So, uh, yeah, it was tough. It was really, really tough. I was in the class with a lot of kids that were younger than me, 15, 14, suffered brain injuries like me from car accidents. And, uh, many of them were deformed looking. Many of them had very obvious signs of impairment, uh, as I did. Um, but I didn't see that as negative. I saw it as a motivating factor. I saw it as an opportunity for me to get past this because I was better than this. If you remember in part one of my, of, of the miracle of healthy and fitness, remember I wanted to fit in. Remember all my friends were typically better than me in a lot of things, right? They were older than me. So they were bigger than me or stronger than me. They were more athletic than me because they were bigger and stronger than me. They might've been a little bit smarter than me because they were older and more mature and had more courses and time on earth than I did. Um, so I always wanted to fit in, right? So 
this was the same sort of thing. I, I, I wanted to get ahead and work harder because I didn't want to fit in. I wanted to be better. I wanted to be more. And that really helped to excel me to get pushed through this. So fast forward about four months into this rehab center and uh, the doctor, the therapist at the time, psychiatrist, gave me a test, a Meyer-Briggs memory test, um, and compared it to my first results. And the results were very minimal, very minimal. I barely went up and they were below average. And he suggested to my parents that I not go back to school and that I take another semester off and keep going through the therapy. Well, I don't know again what happened in this moment. It was like one of those like times back when I, I got my mood in my lip. Um, I'll call this a miracle as well. But there was something intuitive in me, something innate that I knew that if I didn't go back to college, that it was going to be detrimental to my growth and in my progress. I knew I had to get back to school. I knew I had to get back to my to being able to be back with my classmates and acclimate back, whether I was at the top or I was at the very bottom. And I didn't mind being at the very bottom because I remember I'm always I, I've been working hard to be equal and fit in anyway. So that didn't scare me. So I told my parents, I have to go back. Well, for some reason, my parents believed me and they trusted my instincts and they signed a waiver against the will of the therapist to release me. And they called up the University of Maryland and said, Stephen is coming back to school in the spring semester. With open arms, University of Maryland graciously accepts me back in and was excited to have me back in. Uh, many of the, the department heads and faculty in the human health department, uh, it's actually now the School of Public Health, but at the time it was the school, uh, it was the, uh, the degree of kinesiology, uh, human health and performance, uh, were excited to meet me and wanted to meet me and were really, um, they were amazed at the recovery and that I was going to be able to come back. So that gave me motivation to get back because they were insistent that I come and see them as soon as I get there. So um, I get back to college and uh, I did go see them and everybody, my, my, my fraternity um, embraced me with open arms and supported me and I stayed and slept in the house and uh, my roommate at the time, John, uh, was awesome and very supportive and some of my friends like Bob and Bob and Drew, they all were like very supportive and, and, and everybody did whatever they could to make me feel at ease and make me feel welcomed back and put no pressure on me to do anything that I didn't want to do. I didn't drink. I didn't party. Uh, I didn't hang out. I did what I needed to do to recover. And that was go to school, exercise, and just hang out with friends that were very supportive and, 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 you know, were, were super cool. So that's what I did. And, uh, I got back to school, uh, that spring semester and I did it, but that wasn't it. I wasn't done. You see, I had lost hearing in my left ear. I had crushed my eardrum, which I had told you in part one, the smallest bones in your body, and I couldn't hear. And the ENT, the ear, nose, and throat specialist, wanted to do a, a ear surgery on me that was going to, one, either replace the eardrum, or two, to reconstruct it. So I went back to the University of Maryland um, hospital and did a consultation with my parents there. And the doctor said, this looks like we can do it. It's going to be successful. However, I don't really know what we can do until we go in. 
So you have to just trust me. It's going to be one of these two procedures. My hope is that I can reconstruct it because with a prosthetic eardrum, we can get some, with, there's some room for a rejection. So um, instead of going on spring break that year, I went in for surgery and ended up having ear surgery. And it was a five-hour delicate ear surgery. I come out of surgery, and I remember I was very, I had a very bad reaction to the anesthesia. Um, I woke up, and I was throwing up and uh, dry heaving, and I had bandages all around my head. And when I woke up, the doctor was there, and he took the bandages off, and my ear stuck out. And my hair was shaved again, like on the half side of my head. And he said, I was able to save your eardrum. But the bad news is I had to cut your ear off and shave your head. And your ear is going to be swollen, sticking out like this for at least a couple of months. And you've got this big, you have a last, you know, like a cut behind your ear. So if you peel your ear forward from the base of your ear, from the top to the earlobe at the bottom, they cut it and peeled my ear forward so that he can get in and do this delicate procedure of reconstructing my eardrum. He said, the hope is that I get, you know, your hearing back. And in my mind, it's like, fuck the hearing. Like, I can't believe I look like this now. I looked like slough from the Goonies. Like, all, like, I still didn't have 100% of my face back, my face muscles moving back. So I still talked at the side of my mouth. My head was shaved again, half, and my ear stuck out. And it was terrible. I felt terrible again. Like, I got kicked in the nuts and thrown back down to where I felt right when I came out of the hospital. It sucked. Like, so again, emotionally drained or, you know, and I, and physically like feeling bad. And I just went back down. I like spiraled back down to feeling like shit again. And so I, 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 I don't know, like I, it took time for me to get back. And I, it took, I, I went back to school a couple weeks later and um, you know, I got the gauze and the packing taken out and everything seemed to be going well in my recovery there. And the only thing I could do was just wait. It was time. The swelling had to go down. I would ice my ear. I worked out, um, but I could only do things that were very mild because I couldn't put a lot of pressure, potentially rupturing my eardrum because it was still healing like any bone would. So I was taking, I had to take off, you know, pretty much from working out and exercising for months and looked deformed again for months, if not about six to eight months. So I had to go all back again, and I had to go through my whole emotional roller coaster and build myself back up emotionally, and I became withdrawn from friends and going out, and I couldn't socialize as well because I looked deformed, and I felt odd, and I felt ugly, and it slowly started coming back. But healthy and fit still was there and feeling good was still there. And so exercising was that tool again. And I started building my body up and I started building my mind up and I started building my spirit up and I started feeling better and I started feeling great. And another year passes and I had one more surgery. The third and final surgery was dermabrasion because I had a big scar that went through my eyebrow through uh, the bridge of my nose, and my nose was busted up. So I had uh, rhinoplasty, which is nose surgery, and dermabrasion, which basically brushed down the scar so that it would keep it more level and that it wouldn't stick out as much. And 
that as well was also challenging. It was not the easiest thing. I mean, I definitely had some deformities, but it was my third and final surgery that I am grateful that I did all of it. I am grateful that I pushed through it. I'm grateful I put it behind me. That was the third and final one, and I have never done it again, uh, had anything done since, you know, for my, for my head, for the brain surgery, no checkups, no anything until actually I, I've just gained tinnitus. I just started having tinnitus in my left ear, and about six months ago, I went to the house clinic here in Los Angeles, which is the top uh, hearing center uh, maybe in the world. And I went and the doctor there ordered an MRI to make sure everything was okay in my brain and whatnot from the trauma. And I had a brain MRI and an ear MRI and they found it to be inconclusive. They did find um, some adhesions and other types of, of scar tissue that was there from the original surgery and from the, from the, from the accident. So, but that she said was there and it had nothing to do with the tinnitus and it's just probably because of the the surgery I had and the trauma that I suffered from that ear and, you know, I'll have to deal with it. And, uh, so that was it. So that was the challenges that I had to go through and how healthy and fit allowed me to overcome the most challenging obstacle that I had ever faced. And one that I would never wish on anybody to go through because I have met dozens of people. I know many top doctors from Cedar sinai to UCLA to Hopkins, many doctors who have gone through residency and seen tons of patients with head traumas similar to mine. And I never heard one of those individuals come out the way that I have come out. The ability to talk articulately, to have intelligence uh, and use my intelligence, to be socially apt, to have uh, a look uh, that makes me look like I've never had it, to you know, be um, just in a space where I am a light for people to be able to see where health and fitness can play a, a, a pivotal role in your life. And this is why I chose the I Am Healthy and Fit brand because if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Like I believed I was going to recover. I believe that you can be healthy and fit no matter where you are. Whether you are big, obese, skinny, uh, if you have cancer, if you are paralyzed. I work with some of the most talented people in the world who have had some of the most challenging conditions in the world. I'm working with a world famous composer, someone who's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he's got uh, Parkinson's right now, 85 years old, and I'm doing things with him that no one's ever done, and I'm getting him results, and he's feeling amazing, and he calls me his buddy, and that's amazing to me. Uh, he pays me very well, but like, I feel so good when he calls me his buddy and when he's excited to see me and his smile gets on his face and he says he's grateful that I'm there. Like that to me is the biggest payback and that's why I keep going forward. And if these people with all this influence can pay me and hire me to do something for them, I want to do this for you. Anywhere that you are, whether you live in Australia or you live in Japan or you live in 
England or you live in Italy or you live in New Jersey or you live in Florida or Chicago or Illinois, wherever you are, I am there for you. And healthy and fit, that mantra of I am healthy and fit, the brand that I'm building, the book that I'm writing will transform your life if you believe it because it has worked for me and it has worked for countless people that I've worked with over the 23 years of my career and since that I have had my accident. So please take this not as a, for an opportunity that I had to tell you all the great things about me, but an opportunity to tell you about my accident and my recovery and where I came from and where I am going with you on this journey. So I'm gonna leave you with that, okay? And I want you to, right now, say it. I am healthy and fit. Come on, I didn't hear you. Say it, I am healthy and fit. Come on, I didn't hear you one more time. I am healthy and fit. Yes, that's it, just like that. I want you to do that 10 more times. Do it 10 times today, do it 10 times tomorrow, and repeat that at least once a day for the next week until the next podcast. And I want you to be able to really believe it and feel it, okay? So this is me signing off. I love you. I'm excited I'm on this journey with you, and I'm excited you're on this journey with me. This is going to be a fun fun experience. We're building this brand together one by one, one person at a time. I am healthy and fit and so are you. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick five-star rating in iTunes. All you have to do is grab your iPhone or iPad, open up the Apple Podcast app, hit the search tab, search the show Growth Mindset University or just search my name, Jordan Paris, tap the show, scroll all the way to the bottom and then just hit that fifth star and that helps us tremendously in ways that you could never even imagine. It means the absolute world to me when people do this. I would be eternally grateful. If you do that, we're pushing 100 ratings right now, and it's really making a difference for this show. And of course, if you've not already subscribed to the show, just make sure you do that wherever you're listening to so that you don't miss that next episode. I know you're not going to want to miss it. And you only heard this episode today because I thought it was valuable enough to post here. So if you want to share that value with your friends, your family, Go ahead and do that. Share this episode with them. Take a screenshot. Send it to them. Take a screenshot. Put it on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore so that I know you're listening and I can get back to you and put a face to the name. Now, if you're ready to really take your life to the next level, my book is on Amazon. It is also called Growth Mindset University. It's all about how to learn anything, how to take control of your life, and how to fulfill your vision of success. And you're not just supporting me and this channel by getting this book, but you're also getting this awesome book that's going to lay out the rules and principles to design your life full of joy and fulfillment. All right, I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.